This is Los Altos Institute's History of Green Politics in North America course. I'm Stuart Parker, I'm the instructor, and uh, as with all of the courses posted to this archive, uh, the discussion portions of each class have been edited to remove participants who wished to be anonymized. So expect a single coherent lecture followed by a discussion that might have a few uh, choppy bits. This class is a weird, weird preamble to it because um, I was just talking, I was just chatting with a uh, former, uh, well, I guess a, until very recently, a prominent Green Party organizer. Um, and uh, she is completely unfamiliar with any of these ideas. So um, it's, I'm starting to feel, and it's been a long time that I, it's taken for me to get to this point. I'm beginning to feel that um, whatever problems there are with green political philosophy, uh, no one has been particularly helped by um, it ceasing to exist. Uh, it's really strange talking to people who've been, you know, organizing for the Greens for years, and they'd never once heard an argument against economic growth. That's, uh, well, welcome to the present day Green Party, Dolores. Uh, that's, uh, that, that's what's going on. So for that reason, I think this class, uh, this episode is all the more important because uh, people, uh, there are many, many sincere Green Party supporters who I think, whether consciously or unconsciously, understand green politics to be a type of liberalism. And while there are lots of problems with green politics, um, its convergence with liberalism is uh, recent and bizarre. Uh, and we'll, of course, get into some of the causes for that. So I talked a bit about the counterculture last episode as a cultural phenomenon and as a values phenomenon. But of course, we also have to talk about it as an organizational and institutional and philosophical phenomena. These are the other dimensions. Uh, and when we think about the institutional and philosophical formations that come out of the counterculture, most can, be, most can be broadly classed as something called the new left. Now, the new left um, is a set of connected social movements and ideologies that begins to appear uh, in the mid 1960s as a significant political force. Um, there are a number of things that distinguish the new left from what it casts itself against. What it casts itself against um, is Marxist sectarian politics. And we have to remember that while the great social movements of the counterculture, like the civil rights movement, like the anti-war movement, were not primarily 
university or campus driven movements, um, the new left, I think we can we can say, like the core of the counterculture comes out of these massively expanded liberal arts education programs of the mid 20th century. So one of the things to remember about, but to understand the new left, we have to understand it as reaction to the old left. Now the Marxist sectarianism was something that was dead in society. In society at large, um, the red scares of McCarthyism had largely cleaned Marxists out of the leadership of the trade union movement and out of the leadership of left-wing political parties and public interest groups. And so what ended up happening is many communist parties, which had been broad membership-based parties, uh, found themselves to be shrinking and to be shrinking most rapidly in the places they valued most, uh, those being um, trade unions and the, the, the disaffiliation of union after union from Marxism. Um, in British Columbia, the Marxists held on better in the union movement than in many other places. Their uh, relevance in the United Fishermen and Allied Workers Union in, is particularly noteworthy. Uh, but these are peripheral, peripheral uh, to, uh, to these larger developments. Now, generally, Marxists uh, recruited people through certain processes that by the mid 20th century, they'd become to they'd begun to fetishize the recruitment processes themselves, the selling of black and white newspapers, um, the organizing of campus clubs. Uh, these were things that Marxists kept being able to do. And in fact, were things that became easier the more they were pushed to the periphery of society. Now, Marxist parties also had another life that kept them going, which was, of course, um, dictatorship tourism. Uh, we have to remember that um, Marxist parties that align themselves with dictatorships in uh, the East um, are parties that in many ways sustain themselves as dispensers of beach holidays. It's why, uh, right, so the Communist Party, right, if you were in the leadership group, you got to go to the beach in the Ukraine uh, or uh, Cuba. Um, and there were like annual junkets for the leadership groups in these parties. And, you know, the Maoists, the, the Marxist-Leninist party, when it broke from the Communist Party, um, the fact that it would go on to be affiliated with Albania rather than the People's Republic of China um, is perfectly intuitive once you, once you compare beach vacations in Albania to beach vacations in the People's Republic of China. Uh, so these Marxist vanguard parties were weird things, but they also started using the term vanguard with increasing frequency and erected barriers to membership um, suggesting that in fact it was degenerate to be part of a mass left-wing party. So this means that you end up with a set of very insular 
um, campus-based organizations uh, that um, have small leadership groups that are rationing holidays and um, exist in these sort of peripheral social locations. So Trotskyist, uh, Maoist, and uh, Stalinist parties all flourished on campuses. And in fact, while they were shrinking everywhere else in society, they grew there. But they did not deliver a product really that was the best thing for this expanding counterculture. Uh, there's this focus on discipline, focus on control, uh, invisible forces pulling the strings in organizations and highly pyramidal representative structures. And so while the new left kept a lot of the disputational traditions we see from communist parties with everybody showing up with books and pointing at different pages about this expanding canon of scripture, uh, there were other things about the Marxist vanguard parties that were junked as this, as the way, so Marxist vanguard organizing was the main organizational template of the counterculture from an institutional perspective, but they changed some of the core. One part of the core they changed was that um, the new left was not committed to materialism and it wasn't committed to Marxism. It was committed to a broader philosophical exploration that um, included uh, all kinds of thinkers. And there was a real eclecticism to the intellectual formations of the new left. People were trying out new ideas. Lots of new ideas were out there. And the new ideas were being put together in novel combinations. This was also a time when people felt, um, right, there's a sort of a folk Jungianism going on as well. People had this increasing sense of speaking spontaneously, speaking from the heart, in an enacted politics would produce new ideas. And the more and the less we hitched debate to stable texts or unoriginal formations of thought, the worse off we were. So people wanted to talk more. They wanted to talk more about their feelings and they wanted to talk more about new ideas that had just come on the scene. Um, they also, uh, now in Marxist organizations, you showed up for these meetings because you had to, um, with the new left, we see a kind of a new left etiquette that part of how the new left continues in the larger social project of the liberal arts university of making liberal souls um, is that there's a kind of endurance that you're engaged in in a new left meeting. It's an act of Victorian restraint. You're trying to tolerate all this nonsense people are telling you about their lives and about experiences that were very meaningful to them, but that you really don't give a shit about. Uh, but it was not merely that you took in all this information and you, you had this fortitude that would get you through very long meetings, um, the more you, you, you wanted to look as though you were swept along 
with the process. So there are lots of things that people did to be swept along with that process. There's a new theory of etiquette, but there are also drugs that help you be swept along with that process and endure very repetitive forms of social interaction with equanimity. And so we see coming out of this then a new left political culture, a political culture committed to doing mass politics using institutional tools designed for vanguard politics. So there's this deep commitment to a highly, highly participatory deliberative form of decision-making that ultimately breaks at scale, right? The more people you put in a room, the more unworkable those processes become. And this means that new left organizations, very much in the tradition of Calvinism that I was talking about in the last course, um, solved their problems typically through schism. You just had more and more new left organizations because doing new left process is unpleasant in an organization that has grown too large. So this is generative of huge amounts of spindly organizational infrastructure, lots of small cadres moving about in the world. Now, I think there's a connection I want to make here that um, most people have, that has not been remarked upon. It's an untested theory, but in trying to like figure out how I connect the, the two things I'm going to talk about today, I had to realize that the central insight of green economics, the central insight of green philosophy, the things where you go, there was no green, now there is green. There's a new philosophical, political philosophical tendency is the problematization of scale. The understanding that the scale at which an activity is taking place does not just quantitatively alter what's happening, it can qualitatively alter it. Now, the problem of scale is one that um, has showed up with some frequency. And in many ways, the original progressive moment came out of, um, included an understanding of qualitative difference caused solely by scale. The example being disciplines like public health. The idea that epidemiology at the scale of the crowd is qualitatively different than epidemiology at the scale of the human body is a central insight that if you change the scale, um, you get new problems, different kinds of problems, different classes of problem, that the analysis you apply to the microcosm does not necessarily apply to the macrocosm. And that, uh, and it's my view that one of the reasons that so many green political thinkers suddenly show up in the mid seventies and decide that scale is a problem, it doesn't just come from the analysis of the world around them. It comes from the analysis of the social movements they're in that watching organizations break at scale repeatedly to see that consensus decision-making in a room of four people and a consensus decision-making in a room of 400 people are not the same thing. 
It's not one thing scaled up a hundredfold. It's a totally different fucking thing. And that's, uh, and I, I think that one of the great ironies is that although green politics spread a lot of these scale limiting new left processes, I also think it was probably thought into being because people were experiencing scale limiting processes. So this then takes me to E.F. Schumacher and his landmark economics text, Small is Beautiful. This understanding that if you reduce the scale of something that's currently harmful, it stops being harmful. And if you take something that is currently not harmful and vastly increase the scale, it becomes ecologically harmful. Uh, that um, our ideas of carrying capacity, all of these things, they come out of that one central insight that you can live like Henry David Thoreau when there are 18 people on the lake, but not when there are 1,800 people on Walden. Uh, that all kinds of natural systems break at scale. You can dump human waste into an environment until you get a scale boundary. And Schumacher proposes that our central problem, which has been taken up, where we, we, what we see Schumacher is taking an insight that comes out of Paul Ehrlich, who must now be about 3,000 years old, because he's still intervening in these debates and 50 years have passed. But uh, Paul Ehrlich influences the Club of Rome, this group of intellectuals, um, this uh, patrician uh, society of policy thinkers. Um, and Paul Ehrlich, has all of these models from population biology of things breaking at scale of, you know, major die-offs. If a, if a thing has a doubling rate, it's not going to live very long. And what the Club of Rome does is it suggests correctly, if, if civilization has a doubling rate, it's going to end up with things like other things with doubling rates if you double every six years and um you know then um then you're going to produce all these problems you will outrun your environment now this thinking had of course existed with thomas malthus before these ideas right are not out of nowhere similarly if you read the Tao Te ching um it's uh it it basically makes schumacher's argument uh two thousand years earlier um, the Tao Te Ching distinguishes between two social orders, uh, the social order of an empire and the social order of a small place. And uh, that's what Lao Tzu says is that, uh, right, in, a, uh, in an empire, um, the horses move soldiers. In a small place, the horses move manure. And uh, that, um, but, Lao Tzu, although his economic truths were widely understood, like it's Lao Tzu who develops the idea that if you want to find uh, the, the, that if you, the, the way you know that a place is rich is because there are a bunch of poor people there. 
uh, that was axiomatic, axiomatic in uh, until the Middle Ages. Uh, this is the, the assumption people like Herodotus proceeded from, but the world forgot all these things. It takes that Earth Day 1970 moment for Paul Ehrlich's thinking to collide with major opinion leaders in the world. And it's ultimately in E.F. Schumacher's Small is Beautiful that there's the beginnings of thinking that through in a language of political economy. That, and of course, um, movements are often dreamed, um, right? People dream a thing that's near what they are. And so again, we have to recognize how much more influential the back to the lander part of the counterculture is than the other parts of the counterculture in developing this thinking. Because, the, because people who are back to the landers, right, are innovators in descaling technologies. So the permaculture movement, this idea that we can get our industrial vehicles out of our fields, that we can um, get fertilizers, that we can pull all these things out, um, micro hydro, right? What if the reservoir is only three feet deep? Uh, what if the reservoir is a three by three foot cube, right? Have we really disrupted anything? So back to the lander communities are taking technologies from the Jacksonian age, taking uh, and uniting them with new ideas of engineering. So the, so there is it seems at that moment in the 1970s, like the smallest beautiful thing is something we might be on the crest of, that people are starting to live this, they're reducing their dependence on markets, they're making more of their stuff locally. That, and so the idea that this could be, uh, and so people start imagining it. But of course the problem of green politics, the problem that's never solved in any of the ideologies is, how do you scale up the insight that things break at scale? It's, uh, it's, it's the central paradox. It's not that green politics fail as a political philosophy failed on stupidity. There's a lot of stupidity in green political philosophy like there is in any political philosophy. But fundamentally, it's this problem of resolving the contradiction that the philosophy exposes a sense of, I know how to do this myself. I know how to make my economy contract. I know how to make my household's economy contract. I know how to make my economy less trade dependent. I know how to make my household's economy less trade dependent. Once you start hitting a scale of about a hundred people, right? You hit all kinds of problems because you don't just hit one moment. You don't just hit environmental problems in the form of what does a downscaled community of 100 people look like? How do we put all this together? Um, it's a nightmare of failures of managing social boundaries and of various forms of social predation, right? One of the branches of this tree is Jonestown. 
right? Jonestown is not an explicitly ecological community, but you can see how with how to locate it within the California back to the lander communal living project, right? So one of the other problems is that um, these decision-making systems um, tend to break. The green decision-making systems, they break a lot. And the way you solve them, the reason that the party experienced this sudden period of growth in the 1990s, because Jim Boland figured this out, um, Boland's central insight is uh, green democracy is impossible. Um, the only way green parties function is as personality cults. Uh, that, um, that the new left theory of democracy is a blind alley. So you see, when I, so when I, when, when we were trying to make the deal to allow the Green Party to have a leader and to have riding associations and to run in more than half the ridings, um, you know, I was very much up against these folks who were very new left, very alternative. And I'm, and Boland's demand is solely that the party elect a leader who doesn't care about anything else. And I'm like, but we're going to give notice on the office according to this resolution, Jim. We have to tear up the membership list according to this resolution, Jim. Like we're gonna be like the Ontario Greens who aren't allowed to have an address under their constitution. Um, and Boland's just like, trust me, trust me, sign off on all of it. Because of course what he did was he, immobilized all of his opponents and the rest of the organization by letting them immobilize themselves. And suddenly the only source of order or authority in the party was the leader. And so Bolin understood that paradox so well. He, he was the guy who turned Greenpeace from a new left cadre into an international corporation. Uh, and he beat all of these leaders of personality cults at tactics, even though Boland was not a personally charismatic man. He had the occasional very funny line, but nobody, he didn't have like the aura that his arch nemesis Paul Watson had. Uh, you know, he, Jim didn't, uh, didn't pull you in that way. I do remember the first time I, I met him though, we were in some debate and, uh, I said, to, I said to him, Jim, uh, that sounds a little anti-democratic. And he goes, this isn't democracy. This is politics, God damn it. So that's the other thing that shows up very early in green politics that we have to remember is that because the actual decision-making processes and systems of the new left constantly clog and go into crisis. Um, and they're designed this way to prevent the concentration of power by Stalinists and demagogues. But of course, all they do is produce Stalinists and demagogues. Almost everything becomes reduced to a personality cult in these environments, which is why crazy levels of disorder hit a Green Party in North America when it goes through a leadership change. Like this Annamie Paul thing is par for the course. 
The only thing that's different about it is it's getting slightly more media coverage and the assets the party is lighting on fire are more visible. Uh, but, uh, you know, when um, I was succeeded by Adrian Carr, the party lost all of its city councillors and all of its school trustees in much the same way as, as we're seeing now. So on the one hand, I think green political philosophy is underpinned by the very contradiction it identifies with respect to scale. Green, poli green political philosophy is also underpinned by the extension of the problems of the new left further and further into the present. That uh, uh, the Greens' commitment to the retention of new left organizing principles that have vanished on the entire left uh, is, um, is also part of the problem. But the adherence to those principles, as we'll see later, comes from this comes from having no idea where they're from. So they're called green rules. And the, the rules of the party now are this canonized document that no longer has any sources. And they have no idea where these ideas came from. They believe they were born with the party. So Schumacher then offers this, this central piece of leadership, what changes environmentalism into a theory of political economy which is the central tenet of green politics when I joined was the underlying problem here is growth and we have to reverse economic growth and we have to reduce the scale of human civilization. And so there is a core unanimity that existed in, not in the green parties throughout the Anglosphere. One of the things about English speakers, right, is that we just don't learn things that aren't in English. The Anglosphere is full of unilingual people. And it's very hard for, um, so although Schumacher's book is in German, it shows up in English, but the reality is that it's far more popular in English and it doesn't go into the other major European languages. And the Anglosphere um, tends to either not embrace or horribly misinterpret non-English speaking philosophical traditions, right? The inability of English speakers to understand French postmodernism, right, has, uh, uh, is just excruciating. Um, inability to understand, to engage in cultural translation, inability to understand that there's that the language brings with it a culture and a style of expression. These are things that we English readers, given that our empires have been in pretty much continuous control of the world since 1754, uh, one of our great privileges is that we don't, we don't have to learn other languages, so we don't. We have no, we don't have, create multilingual cultures where we settle down. So, the popularity of Small is Beautiful in English resonates in Australia, New Zealand, the UK, Ireland, Canada, the US. 
And when I talk about, and that's the clump of green parties I'm talking about when this transition takes place, this shift from seeing environmentalism as a concern that can be annexed to another ideology to seeing it as requiring a novel program of political economy represented nowhere else. Uh, this, the English Values Party is, um, no, it's the People's Party in England, the Values Party in New Zealand. Uh, all the original Anglo-Green parties have their own name. None of them have the same name. Um, it's only when the German Greens win representation that these English speaking parties all change their name to the Green Party. So uh, that's in the 1980s. But initially, there are just these halting little political formations that are sort of talking to each other through the English speaking world, not really talking to the rest of the world. And they're fusing Schumacher's economics with the back to the land movement, which is especially vibrant in the Anglosphere uh, because of the huge white settler states it contains. The US, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, there's, there's a whole geography of a periphery that's had its first once over and is depopulating and um, easily available money to go into these depressed areas. So all four of the original green ideologies are um, based on, uh, contain the anti-growth thing at their core, except one which alternates between denouncing and embracing that position. So one of the, the interpretations of this um, uh, is the Earth First interpretation uh, and it's associated with Dave Foreman and the ideology known as deep ecology. Deep ecology um, is, it's, there's an organization that, that is close to what those organizations were in the present, uh, Derek Jensen's Deep Green Resistance, of which I'm a member. Uh, Deep ecologists believe that um, radical deindustrialization had to take place and that not only did the size of the economy have to shrink, the number of human beings had to fall. That, no, that even if we all radically reduced our consumption, the, the scale was still too much. Uh, now, Earth First was popular in um, the stunts it did in um, uh, using uh, industrial sabotage to stop extractive activities. Dave Foreman was a charismatic leader. Um, uh, the deep And the other thing about the deep ecologists that one doesn't recognize today is um, most deep ecologists, although it was never in the doctrine, but most of them had some, saw there as being some kind of spirituality in what they were doing. That, um, that there was some kind of connection to the earth that could not be fully accounted for, that produced a certain kind of 
of empathy. And so uh, the deep ecologists uh, uh, had, I wouldn't say huge, but I would say significant overlap with the neo-pagan movement, whereas the other parts did not nearly as much. Except I guess the eco-feminists come a second there. So let's get to the eco-feminists. So this is a time when feminism is splitting. Um, this is the age of the porn split, the dress rehearsal for what's being done to feminism today. Uh, so the anti, there were the anti-porn feminists, there were the pro-porn feminists, both positions existed within radical feminism. There were lesbian separatists who took both positions, although they were much more numerous on the anti-porn side. Um, there was, um, uh, there were all kinds of questions in feminism and, um, what had been a fairly cohesive movement, its leadership went in different directions and the leaders and the people within the feminist movement who are followers of Marilyn French in particular tack towards eco-feminism, her book beyond power um does something that Rianne Eisler does later in the 80s in the chalice and the blade what it does is it appropriates the eden myth to feminism and it argues that there is a that it, it redescribes the fall as the rise of patriarchy that there's a pre civilization that is feminist, that is sustainable. And in the tradition of Friedrich Engels, um, there's an attempt to have a feminist reading of the doctrine of original sin, right? Engels says that the, the, the fall is the start of a class system. And uh, French says it's the start of the ecological crisis. So, there's a sense of there. Uh, so the eco-feminists are an example. Uh, they're an example of white people using neo-traditionalism, which is why there's also that bit of um, overlap with the neo-pagan movement. Uh, so you have so eco-feminism and deep ecology um, interested uh, much more in the romantic tradition ideas of emotionality, ideas of spirituality, um, an ideal past and a fallen present. Uh, you get those with Foreman and French. Uh, and those are significant influences within green parties. However, the, once you're in like larger green society and you're outside of the party, um, those are in many ways the two smallest of the four. Um, Bioregionalism was huge. It was the political expression of the Back to the Land movement. The North American Bioregional Congress was effectively an alternative green parliament that met for several years. Uh, and um, they, 
used new left decision-making and their way around it was um, to pour energy and expertise into people who ran meetings. So they had the best meeting facilitators, people who could make any shit decision-making system work uh, were running in ABC. And there was, and this very much, you know, you could see, well, here we are. So this is like another society that is coming into being in parallel to the society. And one of the things that we forget about NABC, well, we've actually totally forgotten NABC period, uh, totally forgotten so much of this stuff already, because of course it's happening in the 10 years before the internet when we have the least reliable records. So um, this, um, this, the bioregional movement is this idea that not that, uh, not that each commune or each co-op or each intentional community should function on its own, but that governance should be based on macro watersheds. That um, within each watershed uh, from the valley bottom to the height of land, you have a wide variety of ecosystems and that these are logical units into which to organize economies. And we have to remember that the Congress never passed any trade deals. It passed documents of principle. But a lot of what gave force to the early bioregional gatherings um, was that you're making trade agreements on behalf of your tiny countries, uh, right? That uh, this was the time to find out who in your watershed um, you could buy a horse from so you didn't have to go to the regular economy. Uh, this, um, you know, so you and, and it in you end up with um, specialist intentional communities like the Seeds Crew from Williams Lake. I don't know if you dealt with them much, Dolores, but uh, uh, Jerry Laborde and his crew—they were are—they claimed they were Maoists, um, but in my view, they ran um, pretty much everything you would. They they epitomized the vision NABC was going for because. They um, uh, so they had the, all these houses they were and farms they were renting in the Caribou region. Um, they any indigenous street person in Williams Lake or Vancouver who wanted to join could join, and so um, they um, they had fly they had lamp standard ads and whatever. So a lot of people who were in crisis. Um, would come and work with the seeds people on their big farms. And seeds were hard drinking mouths. So they weren't at odds with the culture of the street people, right? This was a culture based on like rough farm work and binge drinking and all this stuff. It was fascinating watching them locate a kind of a Jacksonian machismo inside a nominally feminist project. And I would argue it was a feminist project because it did with men what you're supposed to do with men, which is put them on the outside and have them run around. And uh, that's 
like any successful metrocentric society, that's what you do, right? You put the women and their kids in the middle and you put the men around the outside so they can guard you and raid people and stuff. So, um, so seeds made a lot, got a lot of, I mean, it, it had great farms, but it was in, um, it was, it was doing pretty cold climate farming at the time, but they broke horses. And most people in that line of work couldn't. They needed a horse, but they couldn't do that level. They slaughtered cattle. Most people had dairy cows, but they didn't have beef. And so the seeds people were constantly trading. They're like, they have a, had a totally outward looking economy, pulling people in, pushing meat out, pushing beasts out. And um, they, and they fitted into this much larger community of intentional communities. I'm sure, I'm sure Jim Cooperman is going to get to these folks uh, in his uh, in his project of writing up all these intentional communities. But the bioregionalists, as you can tell, I'm, I'm pretty sympathetic with them. I, I, they were they were never my faction. They were my base for some time, though. Um, reasons for that are are very strange, but but the bioregionalists, in a way, they were succeeding at a thing that the next generation of green political thinking will assail. More than anyone else, the bioregionalists' model of social change it faced the question of how to scale up the reduction in scale. It simply said, if we keep doing this and we keep growing, in other words, it took the essentially capitalist premise that they were going to grow at the expense of civilization and that we wouldn't need to ask any of these political economic questions about how to change the civilization they were competing against. So this is what David Lewis will call the embryo theory. You argue that the Greens were captured by the false theory of what an embryo is, that uh, they kept using the word embryo and what they meant was fetus because an embryo does not look like your baby. Uh, <laughs> and uh, at the core of most of David Lewis's great arguments is some lovely Orwellian language flair to just uh, realign people's thinking. The fourth philosophy, my least favorite, social ecology. Social ecology is, according to its creator, Murray Bookchin, simply a re-expression of his original treatise, Post-Scarcity Anarchism. Now, Murray Bookchin is very popular today because of course he would be the one green political philosopher who remained popular in this day and fucking age. Um, now, there are many things I admire about Murray Bookchin. He had, the sense of, he had the sense to create an institute, make himself the head of it, move to a rural estate and wear a cape. And uh, most of these things I've either done or aspire to do. So as a, as a life to live, Murray Bookchin's is, uh, is admirable. 
and of course, uh, Murray Bookchin uh, produced um, literature whose power was unlocked in a Turkish prison. Uh, Oshalan, head of the Kurds, uh, the, the president of Kurdistan in the way that Marcus, Marcus Garvey was the president of Africa, um, or Gabel Nasser was the president of Arabia. Um, the fact is that uh, the PKK is the single largest Kurdish organization in the world. Oshalan read Bookchin and was inspired and rewrote the ideology of what had previously been a Maoist party along principles of post-scarcity anarchism. Now, Bookchin's argument states explicitly what the bioregionalists mostly only implied. Bookchin believes that social change can be achieved by people opting out of the society they're in and into one running in parallel to it. This is his model of, of institutional change. So the more loaves of bread you exchange with your neighbors, the closer you are to over, overthrowing the government. And that, um, that's, a, now the big problem with social ecology is that honestly, you can't make head or tail of what its ecological arguments are. Uh, there's no coherence. Bookchin contradicts himself incessantly. Um, Bookchin, Bookchin's followers were often bewildered because they, they couldn't rely on knowing what Bookchin would say. He was challenged to a debate by Dave Foreman um, after Dave Foreman had, after the deep ecologists had just been hammered in public opinion, not because of the tree spiking, but because Dave Foreman had said that they shouldn't send famine aid to Ethiopia in 1984. Uh, so people decided that deep ecologists were a little bit too interested in the other humans dying. Uh, Foreman never recovered from that. One of his attempts to recover from it was to have a debate with Bookchin. Um, I, and the debate was published as a book and Bookchin is an absolute coward in it and won't disagree with Foreman on any of the things that he historically disagreed with Foreman on. Uh, so the book is not a debate. Um, it's, uh, uh, it's a, it's a, the book is a, is a real curiosity. I might get around to scanning it for you folks, but um, uh, it's cheap. Lots of used booksellers have it. Uh, I'll find it on the shelf in a bit. But the thing about social ecology is that many people who liked socialism and ecology began to identify as social ecologists, even though as far as I can tell, social ecology involves neither. One of the big problems with social ecology is Bookchin's fall and eschaton. Like the others, he fits a lot of this stuff into a Christian paradigm unconsciously. Bookchin's idea of the fall, very much in dialogue or in opposition to Dave Foreman and the deep ecologists, Bookchin argues that animism is the cause of ecological destruction. 
that the worship of natural forces caused human beings to believe in hierarchy. Because Bookchin is in many ways a liberal, he did not read any of the anthropology or primatology correctives to the liberal state of nature. Uh, so Bookchin believed that people were largely in a state of nature like that described by Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the noble savage. And it was not human social interactions with each other that engendered hierarchy, but human worship of natural forces that caused it. Uh, so that's Bookchin's fall. Bookchin's eschaton is weirder. Bookchin states that we can only achieve an ecological consciousness, an ecological political consciousness globally, if we deliver the current American standard of living in consumption to everyone in the world at once. So like Grow Harlem Brundtland and um, uh, her folks, Bookchin believed we, the, our, the greatest ecological imperative was to increase the size of the world economy tenfold. Now, after that, we were going to have a zero growth economy and everything was going to scale back down. But first, we had to increase the size of the world economy tenfold. Now, generally, um, now, Bookchin continued to write and his thinking continued to evolve. It never, in my view, came to cohere because there was never an acknowledgement that he was contradicting a prior position when he contradicted a prior position. And so um, he's written a large corpus and in terms of expository prose, it pulls you along, right? And it has that kind of Deepak Chopra quality of mixing the false and the obvious, which really seems to be something that people find quite soothing. Uh, so I have a real problem with Bookchin. Um, I think it's a travesty that of the great thinkers, uh, he's the one who survives. Um, I think uh, Marilyn French's Beyond Power deserves a read. I think it's really interesting if you read it in dialogue with Engels, The Origin of the Family. Um, honestly, if one were to actually try and build some kind of coherent materialist green ideology, I'd start by marrying those texts. Um, but so, these texts are arising, these movements are arising, and these things don't happen before green parties are formed. Green parties are coming into being as these texts roll off the presses. They're from 1974 to 1984, green parties form all over the world. And the earliest ones, the New Zealand Values Party, I think it's 75, and the English People's Party in 73, and the Canadian Small Party in 79, the first Green Party led by Elizabeth May. So, uh, like Adrian Carr, she had been the leader of the Green Party before as well. Um, the Small Party uh, was highly decentralized. It had no common policy. It was a set of people who knew each other pretty well. Um, 
And many of the left Greens who um, would call themselves that in the 1980s were with the small party in 79, but wouldn't join the Canadian Greens in 83. That's something that people should have made a lot more of, I think. Many people saw what the electoral intervention was like in 1979 and 80 and um, looked at the state of the movement and said, we are not ready for a Green Party. We are trying, this is a, this is a premature baby if we deliver this now. This thing is not going to thrive if we deliver it now. And so uh, people like Nick Turnett, David Orton, Jim Harding, I had no understanding of what they were saying when I joined the Greens in 1987. I did not understand the argument that they were making. The argument was that the movement had to be in better shape, that they could see too much wrong at the movement level that was only going to be intensified at the partisan political level. And that if we, uh, if we didn't, uh, that there was, there was philosophical development and movement organization development that had to happen first. And so their responses, um, some of them created municipal political parties. I should put Dmitry Rusopoulos in Montreal in the same category as Turnat and those people. Ah, uh, Tucker Gomberg in Edmonton, right? There are a bunch of these left Greens who at the, be at the beginning of the 80s look at the Green Party of Canada and go, well, this is only going to bring trouble given the current state of play. Um, the people who were the most well-read and the most heavily theorized were the most represented in the left Greens who wouldn't join. From the beginning, um, the Greens outside the Green Party had more information about Green politics than the Greens inside the Green Party. Uh, and that, that property, of course, never goes away and may have intensified over time. Uh, but one of the things I want to stress um, but before I, I open things up is the initial coherence in the theory of political economy. That, the, that even, no matter what Murray Bookchin said, social ecologists inside green parties had to at least pretend they were anti-growth. Uh, you really did not have anyone inside green parties in the 1980s who bought into uh, the Brundtland or Bookchin visions of this kind of technotopia. Uh, that, was, that was beyond the pale for green politics. And in fact, you had minimal policy agreement on anything other than questions of growth and scale. No agreement about whether a regulatory state should exist. No agreement about whether liberal human rights should exist. Uh, but there was this agreement about scale, uh, that uh, there was a central ecological understanding that united the four um, ideological factions and ran a common thread through all these little regional green parties throughout the English speaking world. 
Okay, that's that's it for the the speechifying. Um, what do folks have to say? All right. Well, um, I just want to add that the Green Party I knew, the BC Green Party I knew in about 1990, 91, no, maybe 2000, I forget. Um, they didn't know anything about ecology either. Yes. Okay. So that's at the end of the 90s. That, that one's definitely my fault. It was uh, gross. It was really pathetic. Yeah, no, by the time they cleaned me out, um, I mean, yeah, we'll see why there are like these waves of loss of different kinds of knowledge. But yeah, I think, um, yeah, the Green Party, the Green Party I tried to create sure wasn't the one I ended up creating. Um, and yeah, I remember that, well, the problem was that the the back to the landers were divided uh, initially over my leadership because at a policy level and a process level, I was horrendous. They just saw me as opposed to everything they believed in. However, I I believed in this thing that came from a whole different part of me, which was that you go to small towns and shake hands with people all the time. That's your job if you're a political leader. And so the Back to the Landers who threw in had access. I created all this affirmative action in the constitution. So they had heavy representation. Their policies were all considered. I go, well, you know, you don't agree with me, just write your own thing, do your own thing. And so, but we lost the first half of the Back to the Landers over me becoming a leader. And we lost the second half because the second half had shown up to defend me at the end. So we completely cleaned out that constituency one in, uh, once in 93 and once in 2000 uh, between those two. And they weren't purges. It's not like I pushed anyone out. But, you know, you make a reasonable choice about what you want to put your time into. And yeah, the but it is funny how like the green party knows less every year it's alive <laughs> it's like uh, i mean and the ndp is like a as a horrible thing but um right for fun jeff meggs and bill Thielman kind of argue about what Engels thought about something right you know they're like <laughs> you know they're they're taking checks for big oil and holidaying in Spain on the Alhambra, but they're, but they still know the canonical text they're supposed to pretend to think they believe in. And yeah, whole other process here. Okay. Oh, Colton asked a question. I wasn't paying attention. Here we go. Um, I would, I was just in a conversation with Dimitri Lascaris about that very question. So um, Dimitri called me up for advice, so I know, I know the plan has gone completely to shit. Ah, uh, because desperation is why I get those calls. I'm flattered that people call me when they're desperate. They could just never call me, but it's like, I bet anything I could have helped you with is already unfixable if you're calling me. So, uh, but, but what, uh, 
so I would say that what I said to Dimitri was, you should have done what Corbin did, which was don't dismantle your siege tower. Momentum was the siege tower from which Corbin took over labor. And he kept that organization intact rather than fusing it with labor. And had he fused it with labor, he would not have made it through two elections, Colton. He would not have made it through one. That's the, uh, because what happens is if you bring your supporters into a culturally hostile environment, it's like you've marched your army into the Somme. It just destroys your army. Yep. You, you need to keep most of the army in the siege tower outside the town. Don't put the army in the town because you're all just going to be stabbed at night by guerrilla fighters, right? Who are going to just hide in a kitchen or something. Like that's what happens if you put your fucking army in the town. Now, in my case, I had no... Um, in my case... It made sense to put the army in the town. I had to put the army in the town right away. And the reason was that um, everybody walked off their job the day I got the leadership. So I had no volunteers. I had no staff. I had nothing. So I had to fill every position in the party with my own organization because that was the backbone of the party from 93 to 95. Until the 95 AGM, um, the lead, my leadership campaign was the Green Party of British Columbia, except yes. in maybe two places. So I had to march the army into the, into, the, into the town, and then there was nothing to be done about it. It was, an, it was not an error because it was the only option I had. But I was then at a permanent disadvantage. Uh, because I had, uh, because whenever there was disagreement with me, that was, that was the way to deal with it, to force my people to do all the work. Right. So had we been just a little larger, uh, you know, I think, I think I wouldn't have, have consigned myself to that, but in terms of, the other thing then that's different as well, though, is the front bench with Corbin, a bunch of these people stuck around and attacked him. Um, whereas in my case, it's the culture of green politics itself that was hostile to me. I would defeat adversary after adversary, but there would always be a new one. There would all, and there would, they would always have these certain fundamental premises that were millennial in character. That every two years, some new charlatan would show up with a plan to achieve total global domination in about 15 minutes. And everybody I hadn't personally recruited would just be all over that shit and try and give the person all, my, all our money. I'll never forget, I mean, Charles Charrington was the first one after I got the leadership. And the pitch was so insane. It's like, Monday, Monday, go back to Victoria. Tuesday, Tuesday, put the ad in the paper. Wednesday, Wednesday, take the photographs. 
Thursday photographs into the lab. Friday photographs out of the lab. Saturday, the green party party. Five, 10, 25 people come. Five come back and say, what can we do? Five becomes 50, becomes 500 people out there on Earth Day picking up garbage. Government by the year 2000. I memorized the monologue because I heard it about 20 times uh, in the space of a four-day weekend. And uh, it was so shockingly insane and disconnected. And he stole all of my mother's granola, which was another theme <laughs> charlatans. My mother lost about a gallon and a half of granola to people who uh, just... Uh, smuggled these granola jars out in their bag. That, that was also extremely strange. Um, there are certain things about the experience that were just so bizarre, so totally unaccountable. You, you don't even, you, you don't even like, it's, it's, it was so crazy. But the point is people like Charles Charrington would beguile a room of people. They would be bewitched. You still get this trick in the electoral reform movement. Um, you just use the word professionalization and everybody's all over it. Anyway, Charles Charrington had another plan that he gave in a closed session that I did not attend, but I, um, uh, my friend Dave Curzons asked him at the end, uh, what are the differences you would say between your plan and Hitler's rise to power? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and for the rest of the weekend, uh, 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 uh spent his time with his sketchbook drawing enthusiastic red cheek youths with um, swastika sunflower armbands. And uh, so... <laughs> oh, Lordy. <laughs> okay, I'm doing my job. Uh... <laughs> Um, it, I got to tell you, I don't know what the members of the great, like, in a way, there was this one moment very early on. I mean, we had some crazy fucking meetings during the interregnum after 91, um, you know, with the fucking barn and Alan Dolan and oh my God. Anyway, these, um, uh, there was a lot of like insanity. And so I remember the 1992 annual convention, the first eight hours was a debate over whether to accept the agenda. And the next 12 was over whether to accept the minutes. And the, uh, um, I still remember Forbes Leslie, it's like standing there with these minutes, um, well, the agenda, it's like, now you will see at the top of my agenda, there's a photocopy of a paper clip. Whereas at the top of this agenda, there is a staple. So Forbes, is there any difference between the minutes other than this? I don't know. It's the principle of the thing here. It's the principle here. <laughs> well, could, could you tell us some difference? And then, of course, it turns out that the facilitator of the meeting is on acid. So, um, so he just becomes completely incoherent. And the thing is, like, it creeps up on you because it's a fucking Green Party and everybody's already insane. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. it's like, oh, that guy's on acid, isn't he? That's what's going on there. 
And then Michael fucking Horn is the co-facilitator. So then what hope do we have? And so, so we're on about this, this thing about the paperclip and the staple, and it goes on and on and on. And then people start having these emotional breakdowns. And I remember we're like doing a round about the paperclip versus staple debate. Um, It's about, and we're in fucking Bradner Hall. We're a farmhouse in the middle of the defunct municipality of Matsqui, on uh, these folding chairs in the sweltering hot day. And this is this maniac whose name wasn't even Forbes the last time I saw him. It had been David, but then he had had a bioregional experience that made him change his name to Forbes. And of course he had a mail order bride. Um, oh, and like the overrepresentation oh, of men with mail order brides, that was a whole other thing. So he, um, so we're, we're at this thing and it's during one of these rounds that I think, Colton, these are the words that I think of like, well, what is it that the Green Party members want to get done, right? Because you're looking at this, it's like, why would anyone tolerate this obstructionism? This is madness. And I remember we got to April Wells and she looked around the room and she burst into tears and she said, I don't think this gathering is going to be able to meet all of my needs. And it's like, I think you might be right. Um, In fact, I might start seeing this as like guidance for future gatherings. I could ask like, whose needs are we meeting? Are we meeting all of them? Uh, So um, we'll get more to this when I sort of talk about the Eucharistic aspects of green politics a little later on, but... What the embryo thing signals is not just, it doesn't just sort of shadow Catholicism in that there's a weird submerged abortion debate. Um, It also shadows Catholicism in the sense of Eucharistic despair. This is a really, this is a, really important insight. I was, Jonathan Z. Smith, the great religious studies scholar, is he's the, the guy who I think really put this idea together. Why, do we, why is it important in Catholicism to believe in the real presence, to believe in transubstantiation? Because you were promised that Jesus was going to come back. And they've lied to you. He said he was going to come back soon, and he hasn't come back. The Eucharist became the functional center of Christianity. What it replaced was the millennium. That you replace the hope that Jesus would return in a meaningful way with the idea that Jesus has returned in a technical way, which you enact through ritual. And that's, I think there is a submerged politics of that despair in green politics. David Lewis put it really well in one of his uh, more insane finales to his brochures. That's right, folks, I'm talking about trouble right here in River City. That's trouble with a capital T that rhymes with G that stands for growth. And if we want to save the planet, we have to stop growth, but we're not going to. So instead, I invite you all to donate to my campaign to save broccoli now. Stop broccoli clear cutting, broccoli forever. 
but uh rhinoceros party <laughs> <laughs> well yeah but that idea right we're we we know we have to do this thing but we already fear that we won't yeah. and so this act of voting green is in a way a substitute a resignation to the failure to the knowledge that the millennium isn't happening so uh all right, I know that was a bit of a sucker punch to throw at y'all at uh, 4.20, but at least it's the right time for a sucker punch. So uh, I'll let you folks go. See you Wednesday. Yep, I'm okay. going to be here. All right. Bye. Bye. the sun, wine for the woman who made the rain come.